To support the podcast, please follow the link in the show notes and follow our Instagram at Los Angeles Mysteries, where you can find photos of the Galset Rocket Trio and links to our other free podcasts, The Griffith Park Murder Mystery and Alien L.A. Welcome back to the Los Angeles Mysteries radio program. On our final episode of Occult L.A., we'll quickly recap the mysterious life of Jack Parsons with two short clips illustrating his transformation from rocketeer to magician. Up first, with a little help from the devil, amateur chemist Jack Parsons teams up with do-it-yourself engineer Ed Foreman and grad student Frank Molina to become founding members of NASA's Jet Propulsion Labs. While Foreman and Parsons are blasting up the Arroyo, no serious academics are dedicating time to rockets. Rocket science doesn't exist. But Jack is determined to build a rocket to the moon. And if science won't get him there, then he'll find something that will. Jack Parsons attempts to conjure the devil. Rocket plane visualized flying 1,200 miles an hour. Jack and Ed rush to the bustling Caltech campus. The mild twee Frank Molina had presented a paper on space travel. The newly anointed Galsit Rocket Research Group set off on their quest. Rocket science had landed in Los Angeles. Parsons had developed a penchant for chemistry. What shall it profit the poor people of Los Angeles if the men who steal millions go free? Clifford Clifton hosts a radio show outing officers and government figures who are known to be on the take. An explosion occurs at Clinton's home the prime suspect is announced to be the head of police intelligence, Captain Kynette. The expert witness called by the prosecution to testify against him is none other than Jack Parsons. And college dropout Jack is on the record as an explosives expert. After gaining some credibility, Jack, along with Ed Foreman and Frank Molina, go on to acquire a military budget for their rocket research and are instrumental in launching some of America's first jet airplanes. But when Jack gets in deep with Aleister Crowley's sex cult, he ultimately swaps his vials and beakers for cloaks and daggers. He trades his wife, Helen, for her younger sister, Betty, while Helen goes on to conceive a child with Jack's surrogate father, Wilfred Smith. Now for our second clip, which will take us directly into the final act of Occult LA. Act 5, The Devil's Due. About three months ago, I met Captain L. Ron Hubbard. He is a gentleman is honest and intelligent, and we have become great friends. 
Jack is enthralled by his mesmerizing sway over the women in the lodge. Although Betty and I are still friendly, she has transferred her sexual affections to him. A drug-addled Jack Parsons anoints daggers while mumbling bizarre, lilting gibberish. His goal is to summon an elemental mate. It is done. The Scarlet Woman, Marjorie Cameron, cares little to none about Jack's occult interests, but happily goes along with the drug-fueled sex rituals in the desert. It behooves you to be more on your guard than would be the case with the majority of people. Hubbard talks Jack into pooling their savings together in order to flip East Coast yachts on the West Coast. Jack forks over the lion's share of his savings and waves goodbye to the captain and Betty, his second love. Jack has got under the influence of a person whom I believe to be an ordinary con man. At any rate, he is acting quite insanely, and as far as I can see, both deceitfully and dishonorably. I get fairly frantic when I contemplate the idiocy of these goats. I apologize to goats. Apparently, he, or Ron, or somebody is producing a moon child. Jack shows up in Miami, only to find out that the duo must have gotten wind of his arrival. They prepped their vessel, the Harpoon, and sailed out of the marina. Jack promptly heads to his hotel room, casts a circle on the floor around him, and invokes the spirit of Mars, Bartzabel. The captain's ship is struck by a violent windstorm and forced back to port. The next week, before a judge, Jack is awarded a guarantee of $2,900. And Parsons promises not to press charges after Betty threatens to out him for beginning their relationship while she was only 17. Now it came to pass, even as Babylon told me. For after receiving her book, I fell away from magic and put away her book and all pertaining thereto. I was stripped of my fortune and my house and all I possessed. <laughs> Jack marries Marjorie Cameron in October of 1946. 
he picks up a job at North American Aviation, and his life sees some small spiritual improvements. In 1947, he gives occasional lectures on rocketry. He once again is asked to provide expert court testimony regarding a Los Angeles commercial explosion, and Jack attempts to reunite with a severely ailing Aleister Crowley. It has been almost a year since I last wrote. At that time, I was near mental and financial collapse. Since that time, I have gained some sort of mental equilibrium and gradually regained something of a position working in my old field, in a large aircraft company. My aim is to rebuild myself. But Jack's letters are too little too late. The great beast, Alistair Crowley, dies December 1st, 1947. He is lauded today as an occult and pop culture icon, even appearing on the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's cover. But he never manages to escape the moniker, wickedest man in the world. And London papers call even his funeral a black mass. Jack Parsons had lost another father. McCarthy today released an unsigned memorandum saying that Army Secretary Stevens once suggested that the committee aim its search for communists at the Navy, the Air Force, and the Defense Department. We are accused of having communists and communist sympathizers in our employ. Undoubtedly, there are such persons in Hollywood, but we neither shield nor defend them. We want them exposed. Only one kind of red in the red, white, and blue. It's the red that was shed for liberty. There's no room in our land for a flag of different hue. We will never fly the red of tyranny. Un American Activities Committee to Order, Chairman J. Parnell Thomas of New Jersey opens an inquiry into possible communist penetration of the Hollywood film industry. On November 25th, 1947, the Hollywood blacklist rears its ugly head as the red stew of loyalty oaths and McCarthyism comes to a boil. Even the FBI gets in on the fun, investigating new and old JPL members. Many lose work as a result. One rocketeer, now employed by Northrop Aircraft, loses his security clearance. And with it, his current job and the prospect of working in a field now saturated with classified contracts. Chinese national, Chan Chusen, will start to be deported before the government determines his knowledge is far too valuable. They'll detain him for five years, but ultimately, sent him to China. Jack 
who attended communist meetings before the war, and who likely lived among socialists in his commune of Bohemians, is rightly terrified. The FBI has been keeping a close eye on him for some time, and just as suspected, he is soon labeled an undesirable employee for national defense work. Not long after, Marjorie Cameron does as she wilt and flees to an artist's colony in Mexico, where she shacks up with a matador. Now wifeless and jobless, Jack turns to his mentor from his early days in the Suicide Squad, Theodore Von Karman. As you know, I am not a communist and have no connection with communists or communist front organizations. I have no idea of the reason for this action. Possibly it is simply because I am not enough of a rubber stamp personality. Under these conditions, I feel that it is desirable to leave this country and to begin a career elsewhere in a more liberal atmosphere. Carmen's been consulting on rocket development around the world and begins to prod his connections for Jack. But in the meantime, Parsons manages to speak with a review board and reverses their decision on his security clearance. For a moment, Jack's back in the game, and he quickly takes a position at the famed Hughes Aircraft Company. But now, let's take a look at the controversial airship built after World War II by Howard Hughes. This is Hughes seaplane, the Hercules, constructed at a cost of what was reported to be $25 million, $7 million of which was said to be Hughes' own money. Recently completed at Long Beach, California, is a new Sky Monster, the world's largest plane and the subject of a Congress investigation. Its builder, Howard Hughes, a pioneer of aviation progress, surveys the 320-foot wingspan of his latest creation. Through von Karman's connections, Jack is in talks with the Israeli government about helping to develop their up-and-coming rocket program. And he is directed to swiftly construct a portfolio and proposal. Needing a thorough summary of equipment and production costs, Jack gathers a stack of handwritten documents from Hughes Aircraft and dumps them on a company secretary. He asks for typed copies of each and rushes out the door. When the secretary gathers up the papers, she is immediately startled. They are all labeled classified. She informs her superiors, and Jack is promptly fired for removing company documents. He swears up and down to the FBI that he had only intended to forward cost estimates to Israel after it was approved by the State Department, but the admission of hoping to send confidential material to a foreign government concerns the feds even more. They charge him with espionage. 
Science, which was going to save the world back in H.G. Wells' time, is regimented, straight-jacketed, scared shitless. Its universal language diminished to one word. Security. Upon hearing of his new troubles, Marjorie Cameron returns from Mexico, and over the next few months, the FBI determines they are dropping the case against Parsons, but still stipulate, You do not possess the integrity, discretion, and responsibility essential to the security of classified military information. You might voluntarily or involuntarily act against the security interests of the United States and constitute a danger to the national security. For a period of two years, I worked in the world, recouping my fortune somewhat. But that was also taken from me, and my reputation, my good name and my worldly work that was in science. Jack has returned to working for explosive powder companies and makes additional money concocting special effects for the studios. He still maintains his interest in magic, and even confides during an interview that Hubbard had sent him a letter offering him Betty back. But with his security clearance permanently revoked, Jack and Cameron start planning a move to Mexico. Dianetics inventor sued for divorce. Ron Hubbard insane, says his wife. Charges he subjected her to scientific torture experiments. Wife says her husband conspired to conceal 13-month-old girl missing since February 23rd. Jack moves with Cameron into yet another house on Orange Grove. He's now a renter with a few roommates, using their laundry room as a temporary lab and living in the humble coach house on the property. His focus is now strictly on his move to Mexico. Everything, a better job, salvaged reputation, Antichrist Messiah, all these dreams are on hold. Jack wants to make his marriage with Cameron work out in a way that his past relationships haven't. Just to show it was no mistake, told the devil go jump in the lake and so the devil said, darling, cried, cried, cried. Devil said, darling, Dig that cat, he's a cried baby. His ex, Betty, has married and divorced Ron. She eventually takes their child and leaves. Helen and Wilfred 
are still raising their son in the desert. Perhaps a figment of the life Jack might have lived. A more distant memory still is his life as a rocketeer and the foolish youngsters in the desert blowing up junk, designing spaceships, and crafting a science. Sometime before the move, the Arroyo crew manages to gather for one last reunion at a friend's house on Orange Grove. Even Frank Molina has flown in for the party, having married and moved to France in the years since Jack and Ed left JPL. Late into the evening, the partygoers cajoled Jack to the top of a balcony, a spot he had stood countless times before. He would recite the hymn to Pan, to jeers, booze, and flying trash. But not tonight. Tonight, they listened. Come over the sea from Sicily, from Arcady. Come over the sea to me. To me. I shall never forget Jack doing this. Looking up at his fellow rocketeer and old friend, Frank Molina has no idea that this is the last time he will ever see Jack Whiteside Parsons again. Faustus' offense can ne'er be pardoned. The serpent that tempted Eve may be saved, but not Faustus. I would lift up my hands, but see, they hold them. They hold them. Who? Who? Who, Who Faustus? Lucifer. And Mephistopheles. Oh, gentlemen, I gave them my soul for my cunning. Oh, it strikes. It strikes. Now, body, turn to air. Old soul be changed into little water drops and fall into the ocean there to be found. My God. My God, look not so fierce on me. Ugly hell, gape not. Come not, Lucifer, I'll burn my books. Oh, Mephistopheles! June 17th, 1952. Orange Grove Avenue, 5 p.m. The moving boxes in the coach house are still mostly unpacked. Jack's collection of rare and vicious chemicals lay strewn about their laundry room turned lab, but his beakers and vials stay tucked away. Jack is readying to leave for Mexico this evening when a surprise call comes in from the Special Effects Corporation. They need a rush order before he leaves the country. The car is already packed with art supplies and athletic equipment, but Jack's chemicals are still in the house. So he agrees and heads down to the lab to cook up some explosives. He mixes in a used coffee can, shoving his very expensive chemicals into an oven, then waiting around and rushing to repeat the process. A housemate comes down into the lab and witnesses the frantic Jack swapping liquids in tubes and baking them. After a brief chat, the roomie heads back up the stairs, jokingly shouting behind him, For God's sake, Jack, don't blow us up. 
change and I don't mean I'm gonna change your name. Pack your grip and get on your way or there's gonna be the devil to pay. Mystery Angle enters Scientist's Death Blast. The rending blast damaged several apartments on the second floor. However, four persons on that floor escaped injury. Rocket Scientist killed in Pasadena explosion. Tragedy drives his mother to suicide. John W. Parsons, 31, was killed when two explosions, which occurred almost simultaneously, demolished the laboratory on the grounds at 1071 South Orange Grove. As a tragic aftermath, his mother committed suicide by taking sleeping pills while an elderly crippled companion watched helplessly. Link local blast with weird cult rites. Officers say chemist led double life. Jack was half lying under a heavy cast iron wash tub. The side of his face was blown off. I remember his arm either dangling or that was blown off and there was a lot of blood and Jack was dead. He was dead. His eye, one, I had only one eye and I saw his eye was open, but you could see all his teeth, his jaws, the flesh. Police chemist Don M. Harding theorized today the explosion resulted from a dropped can of fulminate of mercury. His investigation indicated an explosion set off by a shock at floor level. A coffee can in which Parsons was mixing a batch of explosives was found shredded into shrapnel. His home laboratory contained an amazing array of highly dangerous chemicals. The entire collection was taken to Fort MacArthur yesterday. Parsons was planning to go to Mexico. There was speculation he was going on a secret assignment to conduct explosives experiments. Evidence of the careless handling of dangerous explosive waste materials at the scene was described by a former associate as completely out of character with the scientific background of John W. Parsons. George W. Santmyers, Los Angeles chemical engineer associated with Parsons, said that from the evidence gathered at the scene, he would conclude that someone else had put quantities of explosive refuse into an exposed trash and garbage containers in the rear of the Pasadena scientists' laboratory. The cans, mixed with a content of beer tins and kitchen refuse, were nearly collected by Pasadena rubbish trucks. In addition to the filter papers, investigators also found some 500 grams of cordite, an ammunition component. For Parsons to have disposed of such materials in that manner would be in the same category as for a highly trained surgeon to operate with dirty hands. And I intimately knew Parsons as an exceptionally cautious and brilliant scientific researcher. In Santmeyer's opinion, nor would he ever have considered trying to transport such a hazardous primer material in an automobile. Such ingredients would have been readily available in Mexico. Parsons definitely was on the trail of a completely new explosive substance, far superior to any existing commercial blasting material. The experiment was considered to be much safer than present detonations. To this day, Jack Parsons' death remains a mystery.
The official report, a drug-induced accident or suicide, is often shunned for more alluring conspiracy theories. Some do think, with all the compounding tragedies, Jack simply could no longer take it and intentionally blew himself up. However, there are so many first-hand accounts of his long-term and short-term plans, as well as his evident anticipation for Mexico, that he likely was hopeful the night of the explosion. So what about the FBI, U.S. military, or some secret government agency? After all, Jack held in his head invaluable information about the state of American rocketry. Not to mention his capacity as a chemist and inventor. In an era now dominated by outdoing the commies, a man of Jack's capabilities and unpredictability may have been seen as too much of a risk to simply leave the country for South America. Add to that his recent bungle with the Hughes documents in Israel, and some U.S. government agency may have decided to solve their problem swiftly and permanently. While his wife, Marjorie Cameron, maintained perhaps the most tantalizing theory. She didn't buy the official report either, perhaps knowing how corrupt the LAPD had been at the time, and how Jack had even testified at a corruption case over a decade earlier when LAPD Captain Earl Kynette was convicted of blowing up an investigator's car. In fact, Earl Kynette had been paroled just one month before the explosion on Orange Grove. Cameron, along with many others, considered whether a man linked to so many high-profile explosions, including the bombing of cafeteria owner Clifford Clifton's home, could have orchestrated a revenge plot in such a short time. After all, a conspirator would have to fake a call or have an insider at the special effects company place a rush order, then trust that Jack would accept the job, not to mention stage his laboratory for a fatal mistake. But Jack's best friend and closest ally, Ed Foreman, always the materialist, stands by the official position. Jack used to sweat a lot. A damn thing just slipped out of his hand. It blew him up. Brother John Whiteside Parsons has taken his last journey with the sun. You forgot me in the between the devil and the deep blue sea. At a ceremony held by the lodge, Jack is cremated and handed into the care of his widow, Cameron. She takes the cremains out to the Mojave where she finds the two humming power lines. She stands, 
holding her husband for the last time. Beneath the same intersecting cables, where they had enacted the Babylon ritual in the moonlight. I should hate you, but I guess I love you. You've got me in between the devil and the deep blue sea. Despite Jack's death, or perhaps because of it, Cameron dives deeper into the occult. She paints her dead husband as a dark angel and burns almost everything he has left to her. She is now certain that Jack was right. She is, in fact, the embodiment of Babylon. Jack Whiteside Parsons spent his life attaining the impossible. Just to lose it all, Helen, Wilfred, Betty, the Rocketeers, and JPL, each traded for a life of drugs, demons, and waving his wand. Jack's story seems to be a bit of an inkblot test for its audience. Some listeners see a clear morality tale, while many in the occult world view Jack as a hopeful figure, something akin to a great prophet. He is viewed as having nearly mastered the link between science and magic. UK occultist Kenneth Grant has even gone as far as to popularize the belief within the esoteric community that Jack and Cameron didn't actually fail to manifest a moon child. Grant's interpretation of what the offspring is, is spiritual, to say the least. Parsons opened the door, and something flew in. He points to one of Parsons' writings, wherein Jack details an excursion in the Mojave with Cameron. Babylon Working, March 1946. Hoping to father the moon child, Jack is searching for the incarnation of Babylon. While communing with the spirits, they have specifically instructed him not to inform Cameron that he believes she is the goddess's vessel. How can I be certain of the vehicle? Do not trouble yourself with this. It does not concern you. I will provide the vehicle. I will show you a sign and signs. All belongs to Keeping this from Cameron, Jack awaits the prophesized sign and begins the ritual of ninth-degree thelemic sex magic.
Then, staring up at the sky, Cameron sees a peculiar glint. As it begins to take form, she reports the appearance of a silvery cigar-shaped UFO directly above them. The Babylon working began in 46, and just prior to the wave of the unexplained aerial phenomenon, now recalled as the Great Flying Saucer Flap. Turn to her tropical spell. I wanted to run away and hide when the devil danced before my eyes. The thunder roared and the trade wind sighed when the devil danced before my eyes. Thank you for listening. We'll be back with more LA Mysteries. But we need your help. So, if you can, please consider donating by following the link in the description or on our Instagram page, where you can also check out our other podcasts, Alien LA and the Griffith Park Murder Mystery. The devil of a woman who cast her spell and left me in this torture since the day I fell. The mystery of her beauty I could never tell when the devil danced before my Written, directed, and voiced by John E. Marino, with additional voices performed by Michelle Miller. Along with autobiographies, George Pendel's Strange Angel and Sex and Rockets by John Carter were invaluable resources. Music, courtesy of archive.org. Theme song by John E. Marino. Thank <laughs> you.